about uh, 30 years ago now, and kind of hard to believe that it's been that long ago, but it's been about 30 years, uh, about 18 years of age. Well, actually, it's been longer than that. Now I need to do the math. Because <laughs> I was 18 when I went to Bible college, and I'm 51 now, so that's a little bit longer than 30 years ago, isn't it? I'm not going to try the math. You guys can do it. A long time ago. <clears throat> anyway, I was down in Nashville, Tennessee, attending our Bible college, and I had a good buddy named uh, Glenn, and, and Glenn was one of the few who had a car. You know, my sophomore year, you know, uh, I didn't have any money. Most of my friends didn't have any money, so we didn't have a way of getting around. You know, luckily, luckily the Krispy Kreme was in walking distance of the, of the dorm, and so there were many days I just kind of walked over there to get some exercise. But... Glenn had this old, I think it was like a 78 or a 79 Chevy. I I don't remember exactly what kind it was. But some of you kids aren't even going to be able to relate to what I'm getting ready to say. Vinyl seats. The windows that you had to do this to get them up and down, right? No air conditioning. Nashville. How many of you guys have been down south in the summertime? Hot, right? Matter of fact, he and I took a trip. We interned one summer uh, just about 100 miles apart down in Florida. So we took that car in, Ju- in June and drove to Florida. Longest trip of my life. But here's the thing. There was a couple problems with this car other than vinyl seats and Nashville heat. The gas gauge was broke. And so were we. <laughs> now think about that combination. The gas gauge doesn't work. and We didn't have any money. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out where I'm headed with this. What do you think happened to us all the time? I pushed that car up and down every hill, I think, of Nashville at one time or another. Because Glenn, his car, he got to sit behind the wheel. Me and some of my other friends that are, you know, lucky enough to be included, got to push him. And it dawned on me one day, there's gas stations everywhere. You know, why don't we figure out a better way? Why do we always have to push the envelope? Glenn, why don't we all kick in some money, fill this thing up, and then kind of chart the mileage, and we'll have an idea when we're getting low. Nah, we'll be all right, because he didn't have to push, you know. So we pushed, uh, or rather, we pushed the, yeah, the car, but we also pushed the envelope, and we risked it all the time, and we kept that car just barely running on fumes. We ran on empty, And listen, when you run on empty, sooner or later, you're going to run out of gas. And that's what happened. It happened to us all the time. And sometimes I felt, as I was thinking about this, sometimes I kind of feel like my spiritual life is like that. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes I I tend to just kind of keep pushing, 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 and I'm running on empty. I'm running on empty even though God has provided everything I need, the filling stations all around. And yet I continue to run on empty. And sometimes I crash and I burn. And I wonder if you or any of you can kind of relate to this struggle that, I'm, that I've had in my life. I mean, I think about you teenagers and I wonder, I, I was a teenager once. And I remember how difficult it can be when you're in a position of pressure, constant pressure to conform. To be part of that in crowd, not to be different. And yet being a Christian calls you to be different. I wonder, if, I wonder if sometimes you feel like I'm just running on empty. And I think about young adults. 
Young adults who have grown up in the church, perhaps, and at times they're facing this crisis of belief and wondering, is my faith even relevant anymore? Single moms feeling all alone, overwhelmed. Parents who jungle, jungle, who juggle families, careers, trying to pay the bill when there's always more bill than there is money at the end of the month. Do you ever feel like you spend your life just kind of running on empty? Do you ever feel desperately empty? Well, there's a problem. And the problem is that we choose to run on empty. We would rather run on empty our way than to fill up God's way. We would rather live out of our own emptiness than to surrender to God and live out of his fullness. And this is the problem. I don't know if any of you remember Rich Mullins. He was one of my favorite Christian artists back in the day, 80s and 90s. He died in a terrible uh, automobile accident in, I think, 1997. But he had a song that um, I used to love to listen to. And Beth used to say it reminded her of me when she would hear this song. And some of the words in the song go like this. Rich says that surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you, and he's talking to God. I'd rather fight you for something I don't even want than to take what you give that I need. And I beat my head, he says, against so many walls. And I, fall, I, I came falling down, crawling on my knees. Have you ever been there? Have you ever wrestled with this tension between being independent, free choice, free will, and yet also needing to surrender to God? See, we live within that constant tension. Dr. Timothy Keller, who's a famous, really prominent pastor and author, has a unique definition of sin. He says that one definition of sin is when you replace God with something or someone. He went on to say you cannot produce your own meaning in life. You can't produce your own worth, your own security. And then he sums it all up with this profound statement. Spiritually speaking, if it's not God who is the source of your meaning in life, then you're in bed with something else. I want you to think about that. Spiritually speaking, if it's not God who is the source of meaning in your life, then you're in bed with something else. You're running on empty. You're trying to do it your way rather than to surrender to God and do it his way. And you know what? This really isn't anything new. Over 2,500 years ago, God called and raised up a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And he sent Jeremiah to proclaim his message to the kingdom of Judah. Now, just to kind of back up a little minute, I'll give you a little background. Israel used to be, at one time, under the, under the kingdoms of David and Solomon and some of the other kings, it was a unified nation. But eventually, they split apart, and they formed two separate nations. Israel was the nation to the north. Its capital was in Samaria. And Judah was the, was the nation in the south, and its capital, capital was in Jerusalem. And it was to Judah, the southern kingdom, that, that Jeremiah prophesied. And he came to them, and he prophesied to them, rather, in a very turbulent and difficult time in Judah's history. 
Israel had already been taken over by the, Babel, um, by the Assyrians. I think it was in 722 BC. The Assyrians came and just wiped them out, carried them off into captivity. And now Jeremiah was called by God to prophesy against Judah and warn them that the same thing was going to happen to them. Only it wasn't going to be Assyria, it was going to be Babylon. And so Jeremiah was prophesying and his, his message was not a very, very, uh, you know, was not very well received. It wasn't very popular. He was basically saying, listen, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon is going to come and he's going to flatten the city. And he's going to burn it down and he's going to destroy the temple. And they hated Jeremiah for this prophecy. So from about 625 to roughly 586 B.C., this is the message that Jeremiah is preaching, and nobody was buying it. As a matter of fact, at one time he was even thrown into this uh, horrible dungeon, this deep, deep pit, and he was left for dead, and God miraculously intervened and rescued him. He prophesied during the final years of this kingdom. He foretold the destruction. It was a time of great emotional, spiritual bankruptcy, really. And he was prophesying and preaching. And so in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13, this is what we read, kind of keeping this background information as as a context for this verse. God is saying this through the prophet Jeremiah, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, see, water is life, especially in that day and in that region of the country. Water represented life to them. So what was God really saying? He was saying, look, I am the true source of life. I am a spring of living water, real life. And yet you've rejected me and you've dug for yourself these cisterns so that you can have water another way. Now, this is a picture of a cistern. Um, And a cistern is nothing more than a water tank that was carved out of stone and that they would collect rainwater over time. And it would fill up and they would use it as kind of a reservoir for drinking water. And I want you to take a good look at that water. How many of you would just like to go get you a good cup of that right now? Anybody? I mean, doesn't that look good? There was another picture we almost used of a cistern and you could see turtles swimming around in there. You know? I'm not feeling it. But I want you to get the imagery here. This is what God is telling his people. And by the way, we're his people, right? So this message is just as relevant to us as it was 2,500 years ago. He's saying, you've rejected me. The natural, beautiful, sparkling, clear water. The real source of life. And you've gone after this. This is what you've forsaken me for. And by the way, I'm thinking... That in order to reject that kind of water and go after this, one of the things that you have to do, first of all, is to convince yourself you're not really that thirsty. Don't you think? I don't really need God. I'm not really that thirsty. And that's the way we excuse it. The problem with these cisterns oftentimes, too, is that um, they had cracks in the foundation, cracks in the bedrock, and the water would literally over time just seep away. And so not only do you have this nasty, stinky water, but sometimes it would just leak away and it'd be gone. And so Jeremiah was basically saying, this is what you go after. This is what you want. This is what you prefer over God. And 
At best, it could only hold this nasty, stagnant water. How many of you were here last week during our interesting little fiasco we had out here? It was a great day, wasn't it? <laughs> I was supposed to graduate, by the way, from our little growth tracks. I was so disappointed. I brought my cap and gown, ready to go. 401, that was it. We were going to graduate, and pfft, now it's gone. i got to wait, but it's okay. This is the water. This is the nasty, stinky stuff, and... When all that happened out there, did any of you smell what we kind of smell like a natural gas smell to you? A lot of us smelled that, and that was a big source of concern. You know what that smell was? It wasn't gas. It was the stinky water that you were smelling. Because in those lines, that water, since it's for fire suppression, it just sits there. And it's stagnant. And that's what we were smelling. Now, you smell that stuff, any of you want to go get a cup full of that and have yourself a drink. But this is what we do. We reject God. We would rather run on empty as long as we can do it our way and drink that stuff than we would do it God's way and have the living water that he offers. And human nature, by the way, hasn't changed much over the last 2,500 years because we would rather still live out of our own emptiness than surrender to God and live out of his fullness. Now, how do we do that? What does that look like in the 21st century? I mean, none of us go home and bow down to our idols made of gold in our living room. Although tonight, some of us will be bowing down to the plasma television and watching the Super Bowl. But we don't worship idols like they did back then. How is this even relevant? It's very relevant. Because you have to remember that anything we turn to as a source of life other than God is an idol anything. Fill in the blank. Now, I want to talk today specifically about behaviors, or think of it as this, strategies for living. Strategies for living that we've devised as a way of gaining life for ourselves apart from life in God. And there's, a, there's so many of them, I don't have time to cover them all. So I've just chosen three that I want to hit on. Three different ways in which Uh, We develop these strategies to create our own cisterns, our own water supply, and we reject God in the the process. And one is simply has to do with pain. Anybody here like to hurt? Anybody here ever go to the dentist to have a root canal? And when they're getting ready to numb it up, you look at them and say, you know what, sir or ma'am, I don't want that stuff. I want to feel everything. I want to feel the drill. I want to smell the smoke. I'm enjoying this. (laughs) Probably way too much. I don't want anything for the pain. Let me have it. Anybody like that here? If you are, Beth has some cards and some brochures out back. I'd like to meet with you (laughs) at some point. Because that's really not human nature, is it? I don't like the pain. I can't stand pain. I am not a fan of pain. I'm just going to be I'm being honest with you right now. You know, if, you know when I go to the dentist, if, if they could just put me to sleep, that'd be fine with me. I don't even want to see the guy. I get sick to my stomach thinking about it. I don't like it. So pain's not our friend, but it is. And that's, that's the dilemma. You see, pain is an alarm. It's the alarm. It's the, it's the cry of our soul 
that cries out to God and says, or that cries out to our conscious level and says, there's something going on that you need to look at. It's like the check engine light in your car. That's what pain, that's the, that's the purpose pain serves. But what do we do? We silence the alarm, don't we? I want to read a scripture to you because the reality is that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he didn't just die for our sins. Thank God that he did. He also died for our suffering. Why? Because we're both sinners and sufferers. And so when Jesus made the perfect provision and when he said, it is finished, that's exactly what it meant. He covered all the bases. In Isaiah chapter 53 Verses 4 and 5, we read, Surely he, Jesus, took up what? Our pain. And he what? Bore our suffering. And by his wounds we are saved. No, what does that say? By his wounds we are healed. He addressed both the problem of our sinfulness and the problem of our suffering. And we're all about Jesus died to save me. That's awesome. But have you ever considered the fact that if you're carrying around a lot of emotional baggage, garbage, and pain, that Jesus already bore that? And Isaiah 53 makes it very clear. Franz Delich, is a Bible scholar, says this about this particular passage. He said, Christ not only identified with human suffering, but he took upon himself our sufferings which he had to bear. Christ bore them, what? Our sufferings. In his own person... Why? That he might deliver us from them. Are you getting this? See, Jesus just, Jesus just didn't identify with our suffering. He took it upon himself. He took it into his own body. He bore it. He experienced every painful experience of your life on the cross. He experienced it for you. Why? So that you might be delivered from it. Pain is a messenger of the soul that rises up and says... Something's wrong. It's that red flag. But we quickly silence the pain. And we silence it through addictions. Drugs, alcohol, sexual addictions, gambling. We silence it through compulsive behaviors. We silence it through just being busy, through performance. We silence it through people. We, we do so many different things to silence the pain. If you've ever been awoken in the middle of the night to the screeching of your a smoke detector, say 3 o'clock in the morning, is the prudent thing to do, silence that thing, shut it down, and go back to sleep? Now, you wouldn't do that, would you? What would you do? You'd get up, and you'd check out the house, right? But when we are in pain, oftentimes, emotionally, what we do is we run from the pain. We don't want to sit with that stuff. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to experience it. So we get out of there as quickly as we can. We silence the alarm, and we never really know what our soul is trying to tell us. It's like the pain is the messenger that the soul sends up to let, alert us to trouble, and we just shoot the messenger. And we never hear the message. I want you to understand this. As difficult as emotional pain can be, oftentimes the only way out is through. You have to experience it. You have to process it. You have to go through it. Well, not only do we silence the alarm, but also we build walls. Some of you who were in my class that I taught on Wednesday night have heard some of this stuff. Um, please try not to check out. <laughs> 
But we do this. We build walls. We build walls to protect ourselves. It's very, very normal if we've been burned not to want to get burned again, isn't it? And it's okay to set appropriate boundaries. I mean, if somebody in your family growing up was an abusive individual, it doesn't make sense to continue putting yourself in a position to be abused, does it? you got to have boundaries that are appropriate. But we go beyond the boundaries and we build walls. We say, I'm going to protect myself. Let me, uh, let me embarrass myself by dating myself and telling you that I used to love Simon and Garfunkel. Do you guys even know who Simon and Garfunkel are? I'm not even looking at the kids over here. Oh my gosh, only a few. These, some of you adults know, but you're just not raising your hand. And that's okay. I'm going to take the bullet for you. I know who they are and I like some of their music. One of their songs was written by Paul Simon, I Am a Rock. Let me read you some of these words. He said, I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that, that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. That's a lie. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter, it's loving I disdain because I'm a rock. I'm an island. And all the men are already grunting and filling the testosterone. Just kind of around. That's right, I'm a rock, I'm an island. This next part isn't so manly, but bear with me. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. And that's when the men are going, okay, this isn't me here. I am shielded in my armor. Listen to this. Hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one, and no one touches me. I'm a rock. I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. And that's true. But neither does the island laugh. Neither does the island enjoy the laughter of a small child, the beauty of, of, of an incredible sunset, a wonderful tropical paradise like Hawaii. See, you can't have it both ways. When you build walls to protect, you're also, you might be keeping the bad stuff out, but guess what else you're keeping out? The good stuff. And these walls that you built to protect turn into a prison that isolates you. We build these walls out of many different things. Some of the examples of of these walls are pretense. You know, we all have a self that we protect that we don't want anybody to know about. But we also have an image or a self that we project. In other words, there's parts of me that I don't want you to know about. Because if you know these parts of me, you're not going to like me very much. So I protect them. But there's also parts of me, or, or, or there's, there's, because there's parts of me I want to protect, what I do is I project a false image of who I am to keep you from ever getting to know who I really am. Does that make sense? Any of you guys ever do that? I grew up in Lincoln Park. And when I was a kid, Lincoln Park was not nearly as rough as it is now, but it was rough, even back then in the 70s. And when I, I remember when I hit junior high and high school that I realized one day I have to develop a walk. A walk that says, don't mess with me. If you mess with me, you're going to regret it. And so what I was doing was projecting this image of this tough guy that if you tangle with me, brother, you're in for a mess. But you know what I was really doing? Protecting the fact that I was scared to death. I was scared of David Bailey every time he came in sixth grade and stole my King Dongs at lunchtime. <laughs> and I gave them to him. One day I stood up and said, you're not getting it today. 
And he looked at me, got right in my face, and he said, after school, and they never said Caldwell, after school, Codwell. And I remember thinking, oh, that's not good. It's only lunchtime. I got four, three hours to think about the pounding I'm going to get. David Bailey had been drugged by a car when he was a little boy, and the whole side of his face was disfigured and disformed. In sixth grade, that's scary. I was terrified of this guy. So I made a snap judgment, an executive decision, and I ran down the hall and said, I was just kidding. Yeah. I'm bearing it all today, folks. This is, this is it. But I realized that that doesn't work. And when I got to junior high and saw David Bailey get thrashed by Gil Guerrero, who in seventh grade had a full beard, I'm not lying. He had arms. I mean, this guy was scary. And he beat David Bailey so bad. And I saw the whole thing and I thought to myself, this isn't good. If he comes after, I'm giving him the whole lunch, money, whatever. So what I decided was I'm going to project this image. And I started this, you know, the walk. You guys see the walk, you know, when you walk like this. Nobody's going to mess with a guy who walks like that. That was my hope. And to a large degree, it worked. But here's the problem. Yeah, it got me through junior high, and it got me through high school without getting beat up. Yeah, that was great. But you know what? I learned to continue to project this image. I learned that hiding worked. And so I had these walls, and it was amazing. Walls are, uh, consist of different building materials. They consist of bitterness and unforgiveness. Many of you... Your walls are consisting today of bitterness and unforgiveness. Now, let me just tell you just real quickly the danger of that. When we refuse to forgive somebody, somehow or another, we think we're punishing them, don't we? It's our way to strike back. You hurt me, I will never forgive you. As if I'm hurting you back. In reality, are we hurting them? Oftentimes, could they care less what they've done to us? They go on and live their lives... And we are connected to them. We are hooked to them. They are part of our lives. They're renting space in our minds and our brains, right? Because we refuse to forgive them. I've said this many times. Let me say it one more time because it works so well. When we refuse to forgive somebody, it's like taking their poison and expecting them to die. It's what it is. Forgiveness is not about them. Forgiveness is about you. In order for you to be healthy, you have to forgive. And Jesus taught a lot about forgiveness. Let me hurry up. We often make vows and judgments. Vows and judgments, and these are the building blocks of our walls. What are vows and judgments? Bitter root judgments, where we make judgments based on the painful things that have happened to us. And the painful things that have happened to us become the lenses through which we view all of life. Right? So what happens is this. Something, someone hurts you, and you form this bitter root judgment based on that. And from that bitter root judgment, you will make a vow at some point to protect yourself. Let me give you a quick example. When I was a sophomore in college, running out of gas and pushing Glenn's car all over the place, I also liked girls. So I had this, what we called, what guys tend to call an unlucky streak. An unlucky streak basically works like this. I got dumped three times in a row in rather successive fashion. And after the third dump, I said to myself, girls hurt. 
I don't like this. I like to look at them. I like to talk to them. But I don't, I don't think I want to get hurt by one again. Relationships stink. I don't want anything to do with that. So that was my bitter root judgment, looking through the lenses of being dumped three times in a row. And then I made this vow. I will never let another girl hurt me like that, ever. Now, the danger of a vow like that is we forget all about it and go on through life, but that vow is still operating. The vow becomes just another Pink Floyd here, another brick in the wall, right? Now, you really know I'm old and messed up because I used to listen to Pink Floyd. But it becomes another brick in our wall, doesn't it? I said I will never let another girl hurt me like that. And guess what happened? I met Beth. We fell in love. We got married. Everything's going great. A couple years into our marriage, she comes up to me and she says, I can't put my finger on it, but I just can't get close to you. I can't connect with you. I don't know what's there. It's like I'm running into this invisible wall, and it dawned on me. That's my vow. I'm not letting her get close enough to hurt me. You see, I had a wrong view of, of, of Beth. She wasn't like those other girls. Beth had the common sense and wisdom to realize what a prize and catch she had. <laughs> but these other girls had no idea. They went on to marry some rich guy or something. <laughs> so we, we make these judgments and we make these vows. And that's just another brick on our wall. The walls that is meant to protect us. And then also we have disappointment with God. Listen, seriously now. Disappointment with God is a big thing. Have any of you ever experienced being disappointed by God? Why did God let that precious person die? Why did God let this terrible catastrophe happen? Why did I lose my home? Why did I lose my job? God, I thought if I obeyed you and I did everything right, you were going to protect me from that. He never promised any of that. He just promised to be with us. He just promised to love us, to walk with us through all of that stuff. But we get disappointed with God, and when that happens, two things happen. One, it damages our trust receptors. We're no longer able to trust God. And two, it, it distorts our image of God. God becomes not the biblical, loving, compassionate father. He becomes this guy we just say, I don't like this guy. I'm afraid of this guy. I don't like this guy at all. I hate this guy. Now, here's the thing. How can you lower your walls with God if you feel that way about him? Selwyn Hughes has a wonderful quote. He said, it's difficult to be romantically involved with someone whom you do not believe has your best interest at heart. If you don't think, if you don't believe deep down inside, if you do not believe that God has your back, you will not trust him. If you deep down inside do not believe God is that loving, compassionate Father, you will not allow his love to penetrate your heart. The walls that are now gone will block that. The last thing I want to mention is we also, we silence the pain, we build the walls to protect, but we also fill in the holes. You see, many of us grew up, many of you grew up in a family situation where you either got something you didn't deserve, maybe it was a lot of anger, hostility, maybe even physical or sexual abuse. And some of you grew up in a house where none of that was going on, but you didn't get what you needed. You didn't get the nurture, the love, the compassion, the support that you emotionally 
need. I wish I had the time to tell you psychologically how critical it is for our parents and you as parents to love and nurture. Give children need two things, uh, nurture and structure. If you're heavy on the structure side, you're probably a really good disciplinarian, and those kids probably walk the line. But if you're light on the nurture side, you're not giving the kids something they desperately need. If you're heavy on the nurture side, and you're loving, 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 pumping all that into them, but you're light on the structure side, what do you got? You got the preacher's kids. <laughs> and I don't, wait, wait a minute. This is being recorded, so I got to go on record. I don't mean our preacher's kids. You guys have heard of the preacher's kids in general, right? The little hellions, right? Preacher's kids just have a terrible reputation. I don't know why, but that's the kind of kids I'm talking about. Our pastor's kids are awesome, but there are some who are not. Joe's kids are, are great. Where's Cassidy? She's over there somewhere. Great kid. Wonderful kid. Carly, too. And Claire, but she, she's in the jewel. Never mind. I can't suck up my way out of that one, I don't think. <laughs> so we fill in these holes. We do it in a lot of different ways. People-pleasing, because we can't have somebody not like us. It's too painful. Performance. The problem with performance is I only feel as good about myself as my last success. The last home run. What happens when I strike out? I don't feel very good about myself. All of this is designed to fill in the holes. The problem is Jesus said, I came. To fill in the holes. He said it in John chapter 10 and verse 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come to do what? To give you life and to give it to the full. If you want fullness of life, you've got to drink the water of life. You've got to come to the living spring of water. That's where you've got to draw your life from. There's nothing you can do. That old nasty yellow water is not going to fill the holes in your heart. It's not going to quench your thirst. Now look, I know life isn't always fair. I know that some of you have been sinned against, deeply hurt. And you know what? It's no fault of your own. But I want you to hear this. Most of the time, it is our own sinful responses to being sinned against that causes us the most pain and difficulties in our lives. The wounds that you experienced in your childhood, that's not your problem today. Your problem today is your sinful responses to those wounds. That you have chosen to silence the pain. You've chosen to protect yourself. You've chosen to fill in the holes. And the common thread here is that you have chosen to do it your way. And that's exactly what Jeremiah was telling the people of Judah 2,500 years ago. You have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water, only to go and to drink the nasty, stagnant waters that you have created for yourself. It will never quench your thirst. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, he's taught Revelation chapter 3, he's talking to the Laodicean church. He's addressing a church. A church that, he said, has lost their passion. They're no longer passionate for me. They become lukewarm. He said, I wish they were either hot or cold. But their lukewarmness, their lack of passion, he said, makes me want to spit them out of my mouth. So Jesus addresses this church and he says this. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. 
So be earnest and repent. And then he says, and I love this, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and he with me. In that culture, when Jesus said, I'll come in and eat with you, he meant we're going to fellowship. We're going to get close. We're going to have a good, close time together. He stands at your door. Do you know that God will never come crashing through the doors of your heart? He will always patiently wait to be invited. And then he'll come in and he'll fill those holes. Once when Jesus was passing through a village of Samaria, there was a woman drawing well from Jacob's, drawing water from Jacob's well. He sat down and he began to have a conversation with her and he basically said, you know what, uh, I have water that you don't know about. And he went on and he said this, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus offers the water of life that we will never, ever thirst. The water that will fill the holes. The water that will give us life. Now, I want to just share just quickly as I close and wrap this up. What I've discovered in my own life. When I'm running on empty... What do I do? What have I learned in my Christian experience over the last 30, 40 years? And I've learned this. First, it all starts with my personal relationship with Christ. That's the foundation. you got to stop and check right there. What's that like? Am I really, really fellowshipping with Jesus? Are we close? Are we tight? Am I spending time with him? Do I even know him? Have I never taken that first step to invite Jesus to become the living water of my life. And then from there, there needs to be a commitment to discipleship. You know, we need to embrace the spiritual disciplines of Bible reading, church attendance, worship, prayer, all the things that we need to do to commit to a process of discipleship. Discipleship will not just happen. You have to choose to do it and have to commit to the process. And then we need to connect with Christian community. We offer life groups here. An opportunity to connect with other Christians. Why? Because God did not design you and me to go through this thing alone. We're not designed. Do you know that the brain itself, neuroscience tells us that the brain itself, we now know, is a relational organ. And it only grows in the context of relationship. And yet as Christians, we say, I'll do it on my own. I don't need you. We can't grow and we can't develop. And then finally, we need to discover what we were created to do. What is our purpose in life? Why are we here? If we'll follow, these, follow this pathway that God has created, we can experience life. Rather than living out of our own emptiness, we can live out of God's fullness, but we have to do it his way. The choice is clear. Continue to run on empty your way or fill up God's way. You see, Jesus is the source of life, and he offers it freely. I just want to challenge you this morning to turn to him. Turn to him.